Somebody shared the thought a couple weeks ago that the best sermons are incarnational. Like you've experienced it deeply. You've walked with God through it. And it's, it's something you've, in, you've experienced. And so that put me on the path to a sermon where if you are writing notes, the title is Trust Issues. If you got your Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 3 because that's where we're going to be reading from tonight. Daniel is right after all the big old prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right after that. So if you open up your Bible towards the middle, you'll find it after the umpteen chapters of Ezekiel. And again, the crux of this sermon is in Daniel chapter 3, and I want to read verses 8 through 18. It says, But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sounds of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, We want to make clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Let's pray as we enter in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, whether it's a a letter written, whether it's history written, whether it's teaching or narration. We thank you that there is truth in your word that your Holy Spirit wants to guide us in. So I pray the Holy Spirit that you would do just that as we dive into this text and the truth you want to share with us and impart in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So do you trust me? Do you trust me? What do you think of when you hear those words? Maybe corny. They sound childish, but I know what I think of when I hear those words is the the words I heard in a movie for the first time at about age eight, Aladdin, right? When Aladdin is running with Jasmine, they're about to jump out of a window and he puts his hand out. He says, do you trust me? Says it again later in the movie where she kind of clues in that Prince Ali is Aladdin, right? So as a kid, still what I think of when I hear do you trust me? But as you watch more movies, more TV shows, you realize it's a, it's a pretty common trope and question that one character will ask to another. Like movies that I've watched since then. In Blade Runner, Rachel replied to Deckard, I do. National Treasure, right? Ben asked Abigail, do you trust me? And she says, yes. The Titanic, 25-year anniversary, if you want to feel old, like I did when I heard that. The Titanic, right? Jack asks Rose, do you trust me? And she says, I trust you. But my favorite might be Twilight, where Bella replies to Edward, in theory, in theory. (laughs) But you see in these examples, it's most often said between love interests. And that's because trust is what every love relationship needs to take root and bear fruit, right? Trust is the foundation. Trust is the fertilizer. You keep feeding that trust, and you don't break that trust. 
In fact, there's a quote I share in premarital counseling, and I often share again during the wedding ceremony, and it's a loose definition of a promise written by Lewis Smedes, who defines it as a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. And I love that picture because almost immediately after that in the wedding ceremony, I will lead this couple in their wedding vows where they will say for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, which speaks to the jungle of unpredictability that they're about to enter into together. These vows speak to that jungle of unpredictability, but they also form this sanctuary of trust, this refuge they can run to in each other. And I'd be willing to bet that of all the people I've married, none, if any, when they've been making those vows in their heads at the forefront of their mind are picturing worse, poorer, and sickness in that moment, right? And that's probably a good and healthy thing. And what's beautiful about that is you don't no longer uh, pursue those things alone, but you do it hand in hand as husband and wife. But in a similar way, when we choose to follow and obey God, I think often we think in that moment that the other side is riches, health, and better. And we wouldn't really admit it, but it's a contract faith. Like, I'll put in, and then I'll get out. I'll make my withdrawal. I'll do right, and good things will happen to me. It's functional. It's predictable. It's comfortable. And then life happens. This jungle of unpredictability when worse or poorer or sickness might hit, and sometimes we tuck in and bail. Because we'd say, well, I trusted God, and he broke my trust. But I'd say, I would say that trust was in the wrong thing all along, more tethered to circumstance than to God himself. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego certainly had a for better or worse faith. Now, if you aren't familiar with the greater context, as we were reading that, you might be saying, who are these three guys with these colorful names that I can't spell? These were three young Israelite men living in exile in the kingdom of Babylon in approximately 600 B.C., As Hebrew exiles, they were drafted into this program, this Babylonian program filled to the brim with pagan culture. In fact, these three names that we read here, they're not even their their Israelite names. They're names given to them by the Babylonians to strip them of their identity. These men certainly would have had their faith tested regularly. And this specific instance we just read, again, the the king of Babylon built this massive statue and gave everybody a choice. You can bow down and worship this statue or you can die, right? You can die burned alive in this furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refrained. They told the king, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Again, this is a for better or worse faith. God can save us. God will save us. And even if he doesn't, even if things do get worse, we still won't bow to your statue because of our love for God. And they make this incredibly powerful statement in God's ability to save them. And then he miraculously does just that. (laughs) They're thrown into the furnace. They come out. They don't even smell like smoke. Their hair is all perfect still. They come out and they haven't even been harmed. And then we don't really hear from them again. So we kind of assume, all right, Happily ever after. God saved the day, and they lived happily ever after. Disney ending, right? Just like Aladdin. But I think it's because of the way things play out that we often forget a key part of their statement, even if he doesn't. And it's this presence of the even if ingredient in our faith life that can make us uncomfortable. We would much prefer a contract faith, again, where God won't let anything bad happen to us as long as we say and do good things ourselves. Right, a for better or worse faith, 
that could cause us to walk into a premature cremation, your heart pass. I'm good. Years ago, I was a guest preacher at a, a church where I preached a prayer on, or a sermon on prayer, really just the value of silence. You know, growing up with or raising a mostly nonverbal son, like just being in his presence, he didn't have to say anything, and I'm overjoyed. And just sharing about that with God the Father. And I remember I closed that sermon with just personal testimony that, like, I pray again and again for Steph and Raj to be healed, but even if they're not, like, even if I don't get the response I want, I'm walking in relationship with the God of the universe, right? Even if I don't get that outcome I want, I'm actively in communion with my creator. That's, that's a miracle in and of itself. And I can remember getting off the stage and you get the usual interactions, like, that was great, pastor, pray for me. And then I got to the back of the sanctuary and I was met by, like, the prayer team. And they, they let me know, no, no, we're going to pray for healing for your wife. We're not going to settle for anything less. The gist was, <laughs> the gist, they wouldn't say it out loud, but it was like, oh, ye of little faith. How could you say that from the stage? Right? We're going to pray for, for healing for your wife. We're not going to settle for anything less. And that's a, a God will rescue faith. And it's championed in the church, and for good reason, mind you, because we just read one of countless stories in Scripture where God rescues and where God delivers. As, you know, one of the pastors of one of the more prominent churches you could say in our nation, on his personal website, it says that God already paid for our healing at the cross, and you can't decide not to buy something if you've already paid for it. And the assertion he goes on to make is healing is ours if we have the right kind of faith. The faith he speaks of, again, is a God will rescue faith. But what about an even if faith? Like, don't get me wrong, God will rescue is, is again, it's absolutely essential. It's beautiful. It comes from the mouth of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right here. God will rescue. But they follow that with even if, which can be downright off-putting for some people. Again, because they were saved, it's so easy to read quickly over those words, even if he doesn't. You might even say, God's about to rescue you. How weak is that? You're like, even if he doesn't, no, God's going to save you because we're on the other side of the story. You see, when we teach the story in Sunday school or even from the pulpit, we forget not only the greater context of their words, but the greater context of their story. It's the danger of, a, of the American church where statistically, the statistics scream that most people are reading Bible verses, but they're not reading their Bible, right? We're, we're missing context because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were certainly examples of incredible faith. But in the broader context, they were also exceptions, right? Their results weren't the norm. What happened to nearly all the Israelites, including their own friends and family most likely, was extended exile. Other exiles didn't get tagged for a Babylon program because they were the best and brightest. They lived for decades in a dark season of exile in a foreign nation, a pagan nation. To hold up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as proof that God will always deliver us is to send a message that doesn't line up with the majority of God's people in their own generation. In fact, it doesn't even line up with their own experience either. Like, think about when Babylon first came and confronted the Israelites before taking them into exile. I can guarantee they were, working in, they were walking in the same kind of faith. They probably prayed. They probably said, if we are in conflict with the Babylonians, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from the Babylonians, and even if he doesn't, we'll continue to worship him. No doubt they had the same faith that they displayed at the furnace that God could have delivered the nation of Israel, but he didn't. That even if is something that happened. And this is the context, context of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's statement of faith, faith when face-to-face -face with the furnace. They'd walked through for worse, for poorer, and for sicker before, 
and their faith in God was still standing. So I would submit, I would assert that their even if isn't indicative of a lesser faith, but an even greater faith that had been tried and tested as true. Recently, over lunch, somebody reminded me of our sharing service at the beginning of January and how David Godwin got up and he didn't share from his personal experiences. Most everybody does. He got up and started waxing poetic about the Bosches, right? Because <laughs> uh, to do life with them, as David was saying, is like to live with people in Hebrews 11 who are doing life by faith, enduring because of their faith. And he lumped uh, us in there with that. And I love the Godwins. I go to war for the daughters when they start dating. They're going to have the crazy uncle to fear, any boyfriend. They're going to be that crazy uncle. They're going to fear even more than David. And I don't want to speak for the Boshes, but when he said that in the back of my head, I'm thinking, yeah, if I relate to a part of Hebrews 11, I kind of relate more to like the back end, the end of Hebrews 11. See, Hebrews 11, if you're not familiar, it chronicles achievement after achievement achieved by faith. And it begins to crescendo as it lists miracle after miracle midway. In verse 34, it even mentions how God quenched the fury of flames very well, perhaps, speaking to the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in the next breath, in verse 35, it closes the chapter by saying, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained and imprisoned. Some died by stoning, some were sawed in half, others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing sheeps of skin, excuse me, skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. See, these people didn't suffer through all this because they had a JV faith that didn't believe God could heal or deliver them. They had an even if faith that said, even if we don't receive full deliverance in this life, if we don't receive the full promise in this life, I know full deliverance and that full promise is coming eternally. So I can still trust, still hope, still have faith. See, Hebrews 11, you read it front to back, it paints this complete picture of the faith walk. As one of my favorite lyricists put it, the faith walk is not for the faint hearted. Hebrews 11 reminds us there will be mountaintop moments and there will be valley seasons. There are times where we experience God's deliverance in incredible ways, and then there are times where we don't. How do we maintain in both? By faith. By faith is this chorus. It's the anthem of Hebrews 11. It's repeated over and over as the author gives these various accounts. Now, the Greek for this word, Amy and David don't laugh at me, is like piste. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's P-I-S-T-E-A. But it is the dative tense of the word I do know how to pronounce, pistis. Pistis. Sorry. Excuse me. Pistis. That better not be Amy laughing. <laughs> but it speaks to faith. It speaks to trusting. And most importantly, it speaks not just to faith, but faithfulness. And not just trust, but trustworthiness. In Greek culture, the goddess of the same name is the goddess of trust and trustworthiness. The faith that's championed in Hebrews 11 isn't just one that stands firm in trust of God, but it's trustworthy. It's relational. It's dynamic. One theologian explained this idea of pistis as a dialogue between two people. The second party is you and me, how we respond. By faith, we fill in that blank. By faith, we do. By faith, we work. By faith, we keep moving in faith. Now, that means practically speaking, especially with this image of a dialogue between two people, for our faith to grow 
into fullness, to grow into completion, to grow in this faith of Hebrews 11, for us to be mature in that way, we're going to have to, at some point, graduate from asking, can I trust God? To the question, can God trust me? Can God trust me? See, the faith walk is a precious journey in learning to trust God. Trust his goodness, trust his love, trust his sovereignty, trust that he's working all things for good, that his ways are higher than our ways, so we're not even going to understand it as we keep trusting. But too many stop there, right? They stop short of asking the question, wait, can God trust me and my character and my trustworthiness? And just so you know, I'm not reaching with some Greek word I made up and can't pronounce in Hebrews 11. Scripture interprets Scripture. I was reading a couple weeks ago, I was journaling about it, Psalm 19. David opens Psalm 19 with the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Speaks to the trustworthiness of creation, the, the sun's rising, the sun's warmth that we get to experience again and again. You know the term true blue? has been used to describe trustworthiness for centuries. And it's because studies have shown that people associate the color blue with trust. From sky to sea, this planet that some scientists call the blue planet, we relate blue to symbols of security and permanence. David is pointing to this reality with nature as trustworthy in Psalm 19. And then David pivots powerfully mid-Psalm to God's commands, to God's precepts and his truth and how that too is trustworthy. The question, can I trust God, David answers with a resounding yes. But it's almost jarring when I read it because it seems like the close is disjointed. David closes with, keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again, it almost seems disconnected with this treatment of nature and God's laws, but coming full circle, you realize David is praying, God, make me as trustworthy as the sunrise. Make me as trustworthy as gravity, right, as the coming of seasons that we can count on. Make me trustworthy. And you could dive into an entire sermon. You look at the, the David's life that we get in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Yeah, he, he had moments where God delivered him, right, from Goliath, from the Philistines again and again. But he also had those even-if seasons where he's hiding in caves, running for his life as the king was trying to kill him as a fugitive. He had some even-if faith on top of the God will deliver faith, and he proved faithful. And over the course of his life, he proved trustworthy. See, a God will deliver faith, amongst other things, is a statement of trust in God. I trust that God can. I trust that he wants to and he will. But even if faith answers the question, well, can God trust me? Right? Do I tap out? And check out when times get tough. And check this out. Going back to Daniel, this may blow your mind. The book of Daniel is written by Daniel. So Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no doubt they're they're sharing their perspective, sharing their faith in this tough time in Babylon. And listen to Daniel's account and perspective of the Israelites entering into exile. It says in Daniel 1 verse 2 that the Lord delivered the king of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. What's this saying? It's saying that God delivered Israel to Babylon. God delivered Israel into exile. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel had all the reason in the world to have trust issues. If they had a contract faith that believed you're going to get out what you put in, that God will never let bad things happen to good people, that the right kind of faith will always mean deliverance, then their faith would have crumbled. And again, if we're honest, 
how Daniel is sometimes taught. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. As isolated adventure stories where God can and will save us. But if we aren't careful, it can produce a contract faith. That if I'm good, God won't allow bad things to happen. But this paves the way for the enemy to have a voice in our lives. Because reality check, bad things are going to happen. Life is going to get hard. Right? It is a jungle of unpredictability. We live in a world that has gone haywire and is in cosmic disorder due to sin, in creation, in us, in man. And it, look no further than the example we have with Daniel and his friends. Right? They are caught up in the backwash of God's judgment for the sins of the entire Israelite nation. And the deceiver's favorite lies get sown in hard seasons, right? That God's asleep at the wheel. God doesn't care. God doesn't know what's best. If God was love, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let this happen. See, these seeds of distrust get sown, so we live life with one foot in a warehouse of worry. But God doesn't tap out and abandon us when poorer and sicker and worse hit. In fact, we see in Scripture that Jesus came and met us in it. We think, well, if God was trustworthy, if I could trust God, he would deliver us from these trials. But he's so trustworthy, he joined us in them. He never leaves or forsakes in sickness or in health, for better or worse, because to him it's not a contract, it's a, it's a covenant. Much like the marriage covenant with the, the small sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability, God is a sanctuary, God is a refuge that we can trust in every season. But again, the question we gotta graduate to is, can God trust me? Does my trust endure when understanding fails? Because you read through Daniel, or you read through other books, like the book of Job, and you realize they don't so much explain the why of evil and suffering. They don't explain why, it, why how it works, why it's here, but it does teach us how to endure it, and how God is present in it, even when he feels absent. Again, we, we learn, we are taught a lot from context, and I think the greater context of the book of Daniel can teach us a lot about this even-if faith or walking and living by faith, both trusting and trustworthy. For one, we see that upon exile and admission into this program, they get to work. The fruit of their faith was to get to work even in Babylon. Now we know Daniel and these guys were familiar with Jeremiah's prophecies, the, the book of Jeremiah. As Fred was sharing a couple weeks ago, I think, the, the prayer in Daniel 9 that Daniel prays on behalf of Israel, it says in Daniel, was because he had these prophecies of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was, these were hard prophecies. He knew they were going to be there for 70 years, according to Jeremiah. Some people that went off in exile weren't going to see full deliverance. They were going to die in exile. But Jeremiah, maybe you're familiar with the God has a hope and a future portion of Jeremiah 29, but the greater context is, again, you're going to be in exile for a while. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, when life lands a body blow as big as being carried into exile, how easy is it to throw in the towel and throw your hands up? But Daniel and his friends, perhaps in part fueled by this prophecy by Jeremiah, they got to work, working for the prosperity of the city which God had carried them even in exile. Their trust proved trustworthy, their faith proved faithful, and they're getting to work. 
In the words of Hebrew 11, right, you could say, by faith, they got to work even in Babylon. Again, it speaks to the Greek word pistis, repeated over and over in Hebrews 11. You know where else we see this in the New Testament? It's reading this week, uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Now, the, the master is leaving. He gives various talents to different servants. And this one servant, the, the trustworthy servant, upon receiving his talents, his monetary amount, it says in verse 16 of Matthew 25 that he went at once and got to work. Now, what does the master say about the two servants that did this? Because the second servant does this as well. In verse 21, it reads, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful and trustworthy, the Greek word is pistis, over a little, and I will put you in charge of many things. Share in the joy of your master. He says, you've proven trustworthy in doing that, then I'm going to put you in charge of many more things, more work. And maybe your first thought is, more work? <laughs> Thanks, I hate it, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> because I think work sometimes gets a bad rap in the church. I think sometimes we get works confused with work. Because, right, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. And this is true. And let's just revel in that for a second. The beauty of the good news, that I don't have to work to make myself uh, lovable to God. No, he loves me. Right? I don't have to work to earn uh, uh, salvation. No, Jesus did that at the cross, right? The, the gospel is, hey, God so loved, and we respond. But listen, <laughs> that posture of response doesn't negate our responsibility, there's work to be done. Read the next line after it says, we're not saved by works. It's to do the good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. See, grace doesn't eliminate work. It lays a new foundation for everything we do in life, a foundation of faith, hope, and love. I love the verse, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, where Paul says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Again, in the Greek, that's the work produced by pistis, a trust that proves itself worthy, trustworthy by doing, keeping it moving so that God can move. I think too often we, we assume because we aren't saved by works that there isn't work for us to do. So for some of us, we fail to put the work in to transform our character within us. Because trust me, there is character transformation in your life that is going to make your soul break a sweat, I think as Pastor Fred would say, right? It's going to take work. It's going to take work. Again, too often we assume because we aren't saved by works that there isn't work around us to be done, so we fail to put in the work to transform the culture around us. There is culture transformation that the church is called to. There's work in this community that we're called to. We're going to break a sweat. If you've been to, like, these building work days at the aqueduct or a block party in the summer, you're going to break a sweat, but there is work to be done. We do well to remember what N.T. Wright once said, that the Bible is not about the rescue of humans from the world but the rescue of humans for the world. See, the church, we can become so prone to, to isolation that we don't infiltrate. There's no contact, so there's no impact. We kind of just bunker down, hunker down. But then the opposite side of that is, is this resistance to the culture, right? Culture wars, warring against the culture, resisting on every front against secularization and just resisting everywhere. But I find it notable that up until Daniel and his friends request to eat the, excuse me, they request not to eat the food and wine from the king's table and stick to vegetables and water, as they famously do in chapter one, up to that point, they provided no resistance to the assimilation process, to Babylon's culture and program. And when they did, it was private. Only they knew about it. It wasn't even public. 
Now, is there a time to, to speak up and speak out? Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. But just as we're called to critique the culture, we're called to create within it, even cultivate it, right? Seek its prosperity of the place God puts you because when it prospers, you prosper. So we see Daniel and his three friends become educated in Babylon under their curriculum. They refined their skills in Babylon. They faithfully worked and served in Babylon. They proved faithful and they proved trustworthy. They were proven trustworthy and faithful in the little things and in the day-to-day before they ever did at the fiery furnace or a lion's den. And I share this because we're prone to devalue and degrade our day-to-day work. We divorce it from the spiritual things and the things of eternal significance, but there's value in your day-to-day. There's value in your work and your Monday through Friday. Sometimes I think we wonder if our day-to-day work, be it as a mom or a a nine-to-five blue-collar worker, a student, any of these facets, right, if it has any involvement in Jesus' mission for creation. But we should remember that, hey, work preceded the fall. God had work for Adam to do. We were created in the image of a creator, so we were called to create and shape and form and work. Your talents, your nine-to-five, it has value to God. And to treat it as less, right, to stir up our faith for 90 minutes on a weekend and then to shelve it from Monday through Friday, it's to shelf our faithfulness, right? To, to stir up our trust for 90 minutes on the weekend and then to shelve it from Monday through Friday is to shelf our trustworthiness, right? God, I want to be able to be trusted by God. Personally, at the end of my life, I'll probably have worn a, a lot of hats when it comes to work. But I reflect on what Jesus said at the end of his life in John 17. He says it in prayer to God the Father, I brought glory to you on earth by doing the work that you gave me to do. At the end of my life, I want to be able to echo those words, no matter the work I did. How else do we answer, though, am I trustworthy with our lives? This is far from comprehensive, but there's two quick ones to do before we close. And I can tackle one quickly because it was hit on last week. And that's slow down. Rest. Rest helps me actively exercise trust in God. I'm not sovereign. He is. I can't do all things, but he is doing all things. And it may seem ironic to hit on rest after all this talking about work, but again, it's this reminder that while active and doing and working, that's based on what's already done, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I don't work for assurance from God. My work flows from the assurance I already have that I'm a son of God. Going back to Psalm 19, I love the message version by Eugene Peterson. It reads, keep me from stupid sins, from thinking I can take over your work. Like Psalm 19 points to creation, it rest reminds us like the song all is well, that the sun will rise to your surprise all by itself without your help. Rest is a reminder, God is God, I'm not. We have limits, and guess what? Rest is a gift. (laughs) One way we implement it in life practically is with finish lines, right? To work well for the rest of your life, you gotta have a focus, but you also have to know when to finish. And it may be a day or a week where you're like, I didn't get it all done. Guess what? I'm never gonna get it all done. (laughs) It's never gonna be finished. God already gives us one finish line weekly with the Sabbath, but let me tell you something I learned the hard way that you don't have to is we need daily finish lines. If you're married, you need a finish line where it's like, okay, pivoting from work to my wife. You got kids, I'm gonna pivot from work to my kids, to your home. You need a daily finish line. You need a, an annual finish line, maybe even quarterly for you, right, where you got some kind of escape, vacation, light at the end of the tunnel to look forward to. And maybe you would say, well, like, the way my life is set up, the way my job is set up, I don't really, it doesn't really allow for all that. 
Well, you look at Daniel, he probably didn't have standard vacations, and <laughs> his life probably looked different than that too, but he did take pauses. He paused to pray. He slowed down, like, like for a pit stop. Because later in Daniel, in the account of the lion's den, it says, when the decree meant to derail Daniel was published, that he went home, he went upstairs, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, years ago, I, I wanted to implement this into my life, kneeling three times a day. I don't always do it, but I try. Usually it's in the morning after I get up. Midday is where it's hard. If you're at lunch, it might not be easy to just get up and take a knee in the middle of a, a restaurant. But, and then again, at the end of the day, kneeling in a, in a posture of prayer, even if it's just a sentence of prayer. Because taking control of my body for a moment helps me to take control of my mind and my perspective. And with the right perspective, even the hardest of seasons can keep from being blown out of proportion because, hey, God is in control. <laughs> God is bigger, and the pace of my life can reflect that, and I can slow down and let God be in control. Root myself in trust for God again. But in addition to slowing down, fast. Fasting. It's a multifaceted discipline, but it certainly helps you be trustworthy. And look, fasting without spiritual disciplines, without prayer and time in God's word, it's basically a diet. What's cool, though, is that science has caught up to the Bible. What I thought was just like God being cruel, like, hey, don't eat was, I don't know, suffering. But really, no, it's like it's beneficial to your body to fast. But again, <laughs> practically speaking, fasting will make yourself control sweat. <laughs> to, to take something you return to again and again, be it food, be it social media, and fight that impulse to turn to it and to turn to God instead, Oh, that'll work your self-control like a muscle. Fasting lets your desires and impulses hang out in the open so you can get a good look at them. Because your desires and impulses will show you what you truly worship. And that's an entire sermon. But again, practically speaking, fasting will make your self-control sweat. It'll work that muscle. I love that the title of Richard Foster's book on fasting doesn't even have fasting in the title. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. Fasting as an exercise and a habit teaches us self-discipline, self-control, so that we can be trustworthy, not just for ourselves, but God. Not led by impulse, not led by the moment, but trustworthy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a fast named after Daniel. Again, early on, Daniel, he resolves not to eat the food from the king's table, but to have vegetables and water to drink. And I love that here is throughout the book of Daniel, they didn't react they didn't respond. It says they resolved. They made a pre-choice choice to be disciplined, to grow in self-control, to prove trustworthy. It's how years later they could stand and say, even if we end up in a furnace, we're not going to worship anyone but Yahweh. Even if I end up in a lion's den, I'm not going to stop praying to my God. If I had the worship team come up, I've shared the story before about getting Raj's diagnosis, but we were up in D.C., about to go to Steph's appointment, we were getting in the Jeep and we got the call about Raj having the Chiari malformation. And there was like a 25 to 30 minute drive where I'm bobbing and weaving through traffic in DC trying to get to this appointment where like we didn't talk, we just cried. <laughs> and when we finally pulled into the parking spot, I'd love to say that I was the one that broke the ice with something, you know, rallying our faith, rallying our trust, but Steph beat me to it. She opened up her phone, opened you version, pulled up Job 13 and read the passage that ends with, even though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That was her even if moment. Like even if <laughs> Raj is gonna walk through the same pain I've walked through, even if like 
He's going to slay me. <laughs> I will trust. And here we are half a decade later. Steph is still strong, still standing. Still got that pistis. <laughs> she had a procedure done in October. It's part of the reason I've been in the pulpit as much or at all since. And we were in, uh, for her recovery, we were in the wing of the hall or the wing of the hospital that had recovery rooms for moms that had just had babies. So when she finally got her legs under her after a couple of days, she's like, I want to walk some laps. We walked a lap around the hall, past some birthing rooms. And I remember I poked my head. Nobody was in it, right? But I poked my head in. I was like, oh, this is what it looks like. And Steph walked in, and she looked around, and she was like, I'm never going to have one of these. And I remember as a husband, like, I'm, like, ready to lament with her, like, hug her. Like, if she needs to cry, give her my shoulder. But it wasn't said, like, I realized immediately, it wasn't said from a place of disconsolation or despair or like faithlessness, it was spoken from a place of strength. Like a faith that had already endured for better or worse, for richer or poor, sickness or health. And I've seen her work, again, pistis. We've seen God work through far worse along the way. You know, there's a song that's almost too personal to sing anymore without getting weepy. <laughs> it's called Even When It Hurts, because we've walked through some stuff with people when that song was popular. But it says, take this mountain weight, take these ocean tears, Hold me through the trial. Come like hope again. And then it says in the course, even when, right? It sounds like even if. Even when the fight seems lost, I'll praise you. Even when it hurts like hell, I'll praise you. Even when it makes no sense to sing louder than I'll sing your praise. And I wanted to share that because we go into worship. And you can stand as we prepare to go into worship again. Because God, <laughs> I don't know where each person stands tonight in light of circumstance. But I know for plenty of us, those lyrics may ring true, that there's a whole lot of even wins that sound like even ifs in our lives, where we may be on the uncertain side of that fire, that lines, then we don't know what the path forward may hold. But I know that I know my first info, impulse, and so often our first impulse in our flesh is, hey, God, get, get us out of these trials. <laughs> get me out of this, when so often you want to meet us in it. And God, as we like those Israelites did, had to wait so long for deliverance, right? They're in that waiting room. God, I hope you would give us this image that what we're waiting for, you're not on the other side of some door where that is. No, you're right next to us, with us in it, with us in the waiting, with us in the lament. Doesn't scare you off. Our anger, our frustration doesn't make you run. Jesus, I thank you that you came and took on flesh, tabernacled among us, felt every emotion. You wept. You got angry. You know what we're going through. You too suffered. And I pray that in that, we would trust you. In that, when we want clarity, we would lean into trust. And God, that that trust would fuel us, fuel our faith, Lord God. But tonight, let it fuel our worship. God, if you're in, with us in the waiting, help us to sing and praise right now as if you're right here with us praising you for Jesus again coming to be among us, dying for us so we can come into your presence tonight. We praise you. We worship you as if you were in this room because you are. Thank you, Lord, that you're not just infinite, but you're intimate and you care. So God, whatever we're walking through tonight, I pray that you would remind us as we were singing earlier, your goodness, your mercy follow. Your rod, your staff, they comfort. And God, you're with us in it. So we praise you for that. We sing to you tonight in Jesus' name.